we make a lot uh, about the new year, uh, and, uh, and we should. You know, it's, it's a new year means new possibilities, right? Even if it's only in our own mind. You know, we, we, there's, there's nothing magic about the turning of the calendar from December to January. It doesn't actually change a whole lot, but at least for us, it feels like this, there's a chance to start fresh. Maybe for some of us, uh, even a chance to start over. It's just there's something about it. Even if you don't write your resolutions down and post them on the refrigerator, there's something about it. A new year, it stirs us to change, to improve, to think about what is it in my life, what is it both inside of me and around me that I would like to see change. And so I was, of course, I do this every year. I was thinking New, year, new Year's here, and so I'm, I'm going I'm to resolve, at least just in my own mind, I'm going to resolve on some things that I want to see change and improve in my own life. But y'all, the more I really thought about it, the more overwhelming it became to me because the list just kept getting longer. And I'm going to give you just a quick little sample here. This is just the tip of the iceberg of things that I'd like to see change in my life. I want to spend less time looking at screens. I want to eat less junk food. I want to spend more undistracted time with my family. I want to be more hospitable. I want to read more. I I want to pray more. I need to budget better. I want to declutter. I want to serve the church better. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better dad. Just getting started, like those are the things that initially came to my mind, and really more than that. Probably, I mean, if I I would have kept on going, I could have listed out at least a hundred things that I'd like to see change and improve in my life, to the point that I wonder, okay, where do I even begin Because you know as well as I do, it's hard enough to make one significant change in your life. What about a hundred? What about, I mean, what about two? What about three? What about a dozen? Like, the more that I seem to pile on to myself, the more daunting it becomes because I know, at least in my case, a lot of these resolutions are the same ones I made last year and the year before that and the year before that. That for me, so many things don't really change And I continue to come back to this recognition of my own lack, my own deficiency. It happens every year, and a lot of them just continue to repeat themselves. And so this, for me, is really a sobering thing because it's more than just diet and exercise and time management. Those things are fine. But my character is not what it ought to be. And when I really start to look in the mirror and and think about who I am, it's not just a matter of tinkering with little issues here and there. I've got significant issues. I've got issues of character. I've got issues of, of affection and priority. My priorities are often out of order. My desire for Jesus and my pursuit of God is so often sporadic, and sometimes it just feels lazy like it's not even there at all. Y'all, this is true of my heart. I suspect it's probably true of yours too. That if we're really willing to look at reality, to look at our face in the mirror and say, who am I? And what would I desire to see change? That that list gets really long in a hurry. And if we're willing to do more than just the surface tinkering, diet and exercise and time management and budget, then we actually get down to the real desires, priorities, desperate needs of our heart. And we realize, man, I'm not what I ought to be. I don't need a little tinkering. I need overhaul. I need transformation. We all do. And now I'm not saying this to be a downer. I'm not saying this to discourage us because really there's, there's good news for us today, especially as we look at John chapter 4. The good news, y'all, is that Jesus knows these things about us already. 
The things that we lament about ourselves, I wish I was more this way, I wish I did more of this, I wish I could change that. Jesus knows the condition of your heart even better than you do. And Jesus, even though he knows my heart, my sin, my failure, my hypocrisy, he loves me anyway. And he himself is committed to my transformation. Jesus does not look at me and and wish me the best. Here's the book, do your best, Kyle. No, Jesus himself is committed to my transformation. Jesus has promised it. He who began a good work in you will see it to completion, Philippians says. And so we we don't have a God who sits up in the sky and says, well... You know, this one requires a little extra tinkering here. I'll, 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 you know, I'll give him a little nudge. No, we have a God who comes down near, who comes close, and says, I will make you something new. And we see, perhaps better than any other story in the Bible, we see that right here in John chapter 4. A God who knows us down to the very bottom and loves us anyway and shows his love for us and how he pursues us. So here in John chapter 4, this is a, a, we're going we're gonna to break this story into two. We're going to look at it this week and next because it's so significant. Uh, Jesus and his disciples, the context here, they're traveling from Judea to Galilee, and therefore they've got to go through a region called Samaria. Now this story begins a little bit scandalous from the, from the start. We can't see it from our perspective, but Samaria was a place that Jews generally tried to avoid. Because the Samaritans were seen as, as lower than the Jews. There was a racial divide where the Jews felt like the Samaritans were, they called them half-breeds. They were, they were cultural and racial and religious outcasts. And so you didn't go through Samaria unless you had to. Right? But that's where Jesus takes his disciples. And we see in, in verse 5 how the story picks up. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, noon. And there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, Ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. We see what's happening here. Jesus is all by himself at the well right outside of town. The disciples have gone in search of food. And this woman comes up to the well all by herself to draw water. And Jesus asks her for a drink. Now, we, we read that, and that's just that's minor details. That's just set up for the rest of the story, right? But the strangeness of this story would have jumped off the page to the original readers as they read John's account right here. This is really weird. The woman acknowledges it. She calls it for what it is, right? Why are you talking to me? John has already told us that Jesus is breaking a significant cultural and religious barrier. Jews and Samaritans have no dealings with one another, right? But even beyond that, Jesus is a man talking to a woman. You notice how she says, why are you talking to me, a Samaritan woman? It wasn't just a cultural, racial, religious thing. It was also a gender barrier. That in those days, men did not speak with, engage with women they didn't know. If she wasn't your mama, your sister, your wife, your daughter, you did not talk to her because she was a stranger to you. That was considered very improper. 
Uh, y'all, when, um, back in June, we, uh, a couple of us went to Central Asia to visit our missionaries there. And we were at the airport. There was a woman struggling to get her bag off the luggage carousel. Well, Randy Boyd, always the gentleman, walks over and picks up her bag for her to help. And y'all, we got some really strange looks. This was what, what, was, what would be very normal and even appreciated in our culture. There, it was, it, was, it was an odd feeling. And then we were told, now don't do that again. Even if she can't do it herself, don't intercede, don't engage, all right? That's not your place. And so what Jesus is doing here, and it's still true in some parts of the world now, but especially in his culture, a man and a woman who are strangers, they don't engage, they don't talk, they just keep on about their business. And so what Jesus is doing, of course, he's putting his reputation at risk. Anybody who knows, man, this is a, this is a, a significant religious leader right here, and yet he's talking to a Samaritan, he's talking to a woman, we'll find out later she's an immoral woman, he's risking his reputation. Why? Just to get a drink of water? No, Jesus is not seeking something from this woman. We find out he's actually desiring something for her, and you see it in verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now, it's clear at this point of the story that the, the spiritual significance of what Jesus is trying to say is lost on her. She doesn't understand. To, to her, she, this is just some strange man talking about water. Perhaps he's found a better well, a well that's closer to where she lives, that she doesn't have to make the hike up there to draw from the well. But you notice what Jesus says back in verse 10. He says, if you knew the gift of God, and if you knew who I am, you'd be asking me for water, for living water. What is the gift of God that Jesus is talking about, that he's trying to inform her on? Uh, I, Jesus is making, you know, this, this, this concept of living water is not new. It's not unique to Jesus. We actually find it at places in the Old Testament. I think one of the places that Jesus is making a direct reference to is a prophecy in Isaiah 55 when God speaks to his people about life in the new covenant, a life covered by his grace. I, I'm going to read these verses to you, and I want you to see what God says to his people. Listen to this invitation, Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, God says, and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. 
and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. All right, now God right there in Isaiah 55, God surely isn't talking about physical water and wine and milk, is he? No, God is speaking of the gifts of his grace that he is giving to his people without cost. That's what the word grace means. Grace means gift. It, by definition, comes without cost. That means forgiveness. That means salvation, relationship with God, the abundance of God's mercy, the abundance of God's glory, filling us forever. That's the promise right here. All satisfying grace given as a gift. And this is what Jesus is declaring in John 4 to this woman at the well. God has promised his grace to you, Jesus is saying, and I'm the one come to fulfill it. I'm the one come to seal it and make it so. Y'all, later on, if you read through John and John chapter 7, there's a place where Jesus gets up before a great crowd and shouts. He cries out, John says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. It's the same invitation. It's Isaiah 55 and it's fulfillment. And y'all, we... we, I need to hear this constantly, and so I preach it because maybe you need to hear it too. When Jesus enters into this conversation with this woman, it's the same story when he enters into your life and mine. Jesus does not come to us offering us merely a better way of life than what we already have. An improvement on what was experienced maybe before. Uh, 2019 was, was not great maybe, but 2020 will be better because Jesus loves you, right? That really, oh, man, we all hope so. Sure, I hope 2020 is great. But that's not the promise of the scripture. That's not what Jesus came for. He didn't come to, to show us a better source of well water. That's what the woman assumed. Better circumstances, easier access, more wealth, more influence. You fill in the blank. Whatever the improvement is, whatever the hope for change is, that's not why he came. Jesus is not offering improvement. Jesus comes as God in the flesh to offer something entirely new, something utterly different, something otherworldly, something we cannot find and access here and now, something that has to come from God himself. That's why God says, Uh, Through Jesus, God says, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. The idea being the water from the well, the physical water, it doesn't actually satisfy. It just removes thirst. And that thirst will surely return. And when it does, you'll have to replenish again. But everyone who drinks of the water I give him, that water will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life, never to thirst again. See, when, y'all, when God saves a person, it's not just a spiritual transaction. He takes away my sin, he grants me forgiveness. That surely happens, and we're grateful for it, but that's not all it is. When God saves a person, we receive the gift of God himself, not just a spiritual transaction where, some, where the bad stuff gets taken away from us, We receive the gift of God himself. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, don't you know that you are temples of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of God dwells in you and that you are no longer your own, but you've been bought with a price. You belong to God. And so right here, we have the fulfillment of God's promise, not just to save us from the bad stuff, not just to save us from our sin, 
but to come near and abide with us. That's why Jesus says, if you drink the living water, if you come to me, then you no longer have to go searching for a well outside of yourself. The well is now in here. It becomes a well in you that springs up to eternal life. The all-satisfying grace of God makes a home in your heart, both now and forever. That's the promise. But that's not all. As if that wasn't good enough, we could stop there, but I like to preach, so we're not going to stop right there. What's even more, if you recall what what Isaiah 55 tells us, something God God actually asks, it's a rhetorical question, but it's a great question. It's It's a question we ought to ask of ourselves. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread? Why do you spend your money on things that don't satisfy, right? Or we could say it like this. Why are you giving yourself to things that are ultimately empty? Why are you giving yourself to things that do not give life? Why are you seeking life apart from God? That's the ultimate question that Jesus is posing to this woman. And we see it as the story develops. Look at verse 15, John 4, 15. The woman, of course, she still doesn't quite get it, but we wouldn't either. We can't judge her for that. She says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way up here to draw. It's a valid desire. But he says to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. The one you have now is not your husband. This you've said truly. <clears throat> the conversation just got very awkward, didn't it? Now, what, what's, is Jesus, what's his point in bringing this to, to the surface? Is he trying to embarrass her? Is he trying to show her up? Uh, is, he, is he trying to make light of her circumstances, of her past? I mean, what's, what's the point of this? There are two major things happening right here in that little section. Jesus, first, Jesus is revealing his divine nature. He's already indicated to her, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew the one speaking to you, then you'd ask him and he'd give you living water. He's indicated that he's no normal man, but right here he reveals it in terms of his power. He knows this woman. To her, he's a stranger. She's never met him before, but he knows her. He knows everything about her. He's telling her right now everything that she's ever done. And so it's clear right now that this is no ordinary man. Something's up. But you also notice Jesus is not just revealing his true nature. He's also revealing hers. He's showing the true nature of this woman. He's holding up the mirror, as it were, to reveal to her her own deep need. Remember God's questions to us in Isaiah. Why are you giving yourself to things that don't satisfy Why are you turning to sin in an effort to find life and happiness and fulfillment? Or maybe in the case of this woman, it's implicit in what Jesus is saying. Why are you searching for life in relationships? Why are you seeking happiness and fulfillment in men, one after another, hoping that once uh, and for all, some man will finally fulfill? By bringing up her marriages... Jesus is exposing her sin, yes, but not to shame her, not to embarrass her. He's showing her the dryness of her soul. He's showing her the emptiness of her search, seeking something that will quench this thirst and yet never being able to find it. Jesus is holding up the mirror so that she can see it. 
You know, you're never going to find out that you're a sinner simply by somebody telling you so. You've got to see it. Someone's got to show you. And that's the exclusive work of the Spirit of God, to show us our deep need. And Jesus will do this. He doesn't just do it for the woman in John 4. He does this for everybody without apology. Jesus will hold the mirror up to my greatest sin, to my greatest need, to my greatest deficiency, and he will force us to come to terms with it. We may try our best to redefine terms. We may put the Bible on the shelf and choose to believe in a God who would never judge me. But the plain truth of the scripture is this, that God is holy and we are not, and God will not allow us to live in denial and ignorance. If we look at the plain truth of his word, he shows us what we really are. And if we're unwilling to see it, we're going to seek life apart from him forever. That's why, y'all, there's a place in Jeremiah chapter 2. I'm walking away. I don't think I have it for the screen, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Jeremiah 2. No, it's on there. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 2. Listen to what God says. Y'all, this is so, so good and relevant. My people have committed two evils, God says. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Notice, that's the same language Jesus uses. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Do you see what God is saying there? Because it's exactly what the woman at the well had been doing. Seeking to quench the soul's thirst by sinful means. Seeking to, to quench our thirst with water in broken buckets, buckets that have holes in the bottom, continually trying to fill with temporary things, things that cannot satisfy in hopes that they will and always finding that it's not enough and we thirst again. See, we all do this. We all do this, starting with me. I, I fail to come to God in wholehearted worship. I want God, but I want Him on my own terms. And so I'm unwilling to give my whole heart to Him. I, I, I want to, to remain in control of my own life, and so I don't build my entire life on God and on His Word. I want to hew my own path. I want to make my own way and just keep God around in case of emergency. And so many of us, we fall into that trap. We, we want to fill our buckets on our own terms, and God says, you'll find this every time. The bucket has a hole in the bottom. It cannot hold water. Sin does not satisfy. There is no life apart from God. We always end up thirsting again. That was her problem. That's my problem. I'm sure it's yours too. We're perpetually falling into this trap. But y'all, there's good news. I said it at the beginning, this is a good news sermon. And the good news is that Jesus knows this and continues to pursue us anyway. That's what's happening in the story. Isn't it amazing that Jesus knew this woman? He knew about the husbands. He knew about her life before he asked her for a drink. He could have avoided that whole conversation together. He knew beforehand. He knew before he engaged her. Do you think it was an accident that Jesus and this woman are all alone at the well together? That that was not some divine appointment? No, Jesus intentionally puts himself in this situation so that he can engage this woman. He knows her down to the bottom, and he pursues her anyway. Y'all, one of the great fears that we don't ever talk about because it's so painful is this, this thought, and we all have it, this thought that if, if, if somebody really, really knew me, they wouldn't love me. If you guys really, really knew me, if you could read my thoughts, you'd run screaming. You wouldn't love me. 
And all of us, deep in our hearts, we know that's true. And that's why so often we try to hide what we really are from others, because if they really knew who I was, if they really knew what I've done in my past, if they really knew what was in my heart, then they wouldn't want me. But do you see what Jesus is doing in this story? He knows this woman right down to the bottom. And he loves her anyway. And he does that for all of us. Jesus knows you. He really knows you. And his desire is to give his life on your behalf that he might have you, that you would belong to him. Watch what happens right here. The woman says to him in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She's, she's getting a clue. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, pointing to Mount Gerizim. You people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, Jesus says, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You know, it's, it's possible that this woman, she's changing the conversation, maybe just to avoid embarrassment. He's brought up something very, very painful for her, and she's just trying to steer it in a different direction. That's possible. But she asks a very interesting and valid religious question. She really does. Because the Samaritans, y'all, the Samaritans, they held to, they believed in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, but they disregarded the rest. The Jews, meanwhile, the Jews believed in the whole Bible, Genesis through Malachi at that point, what we call the Old Testament. The Jews held to the entire thing. So there was a disagreement between the two groups, Jew and Samaritan, as to what the proper, appropriate place of worship is. Where does God desire us to meet him? Is it Mount Gerizim, the Samaritans thought? Or is it in the temple in Jerusalem, like the Jews thought? And Jesus gives a fascinating response, doesn't he? I mean, on one hand, he actually answers her question. He does say that the whole Bible is true. Salvation comes through God's chosen people, Israel. Jesus does affirm the fact that we're right and you are ignorant. You, there's more for you to know and there's room for you to grow, okay? So he tells her the truth. But then he topples over the whole conversation. He gets beyond that point to the greater point. This idea that, that, that worship, the worship of God is limited to mountains and temples and rituals. No, Jesus says God is spirit. And the hour of true worship has come, irrespective of place and, uh, and, and dress or whatever other religious trappings we might bring to the table. No, the true hour of worship is coming, and it is even here now when God's people will worship him in spirit and truth. See, this is the relationship that Jesus came to provide. This is our relationship with God now because of the fulfillment of God's promise in Christ. That we don't, we don't have to make a pilgrimage to a certain place to make ourselves acceptable to God. That we can worship him right where we are in spirit and in truth. What good would it have done this woman, given her sin, covered up in her sin and shame, for her to make a trip over to Mount Gerizim? It would have looked very religious. It may have felt very good for her to do it. But what good would it have actually done her? Or even for her to go to Jerusalem, for that matter. If Jerusalem is the right place, well, I could go there. 
That's irrelevant, Jesus says. That's no longer the issue. That you're, you're spending your entire life trying to drink from a bucket with a hole in the bottom, and that includes your religious impulses. That religion all by itself is not going to be the all-satisfying thing for you. It makes sense that it would be. If you go to the right place, if you do the right thing, if you make the right sacrifice, then surely life will turn around for you and God will be happy with you. Jesus says, that is not how Christianity works. That is not what I've come to produce. See, she's looking for a better bucket. At first, she just wants better water. Show me where this well is, she says. Then she cha- when she realizes that, that Jesus is no ordinary man, then she says, where's the best religious bucket I can find? Is it here or is it there? And Jesus says, no, I'm not coming to give you a better form of religion. I'm not, I didn't come to bring that. Spirit and truth means that Jesus Christ has come to bring us directly to God, face to face, in relationship with him as his children. We worship in spirit because the spirit of God gives us life, not just a better form of religious practice. Life itself by God's spirit. We worship in truth because Jesus himself is the truth and he has come to reveal all things to us. And see, that's, that, that's how the story ends, at least this part of the story. Verse 25, listen, this woman says, and she's, she's pretty astute, well, I know that Messiah is coming. John tells us he is who, who is called Christ. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. When Messiah shows up, he's going to make this all make sense. He'll show us the way. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Cut to commercial. That's, that's just absolute bombshell right there. Unbelievable. Jesus looks her in the eye, and there's no more, there's no more you know, the living water and all these obscure spiritual things. He looks at her in the eye, and he says, I'm talking to you. I'm he. The Messiah is standing in front of you. And y'all, what Jesus is saying here is for all of us. I, I didn't come to help you find a better way to God. I am the way and the truth and the life. I'm not here to give you a better water to drink. I am the living water come out of heaven to save you. Now, we're going to follow up on this story next week, the second half of the story. But as we, y'all, as we enter into a new year, full of possibility, full of hope perhaps, full of resolution, um, I want us to resolve something together right here. Maybe something we hadn't thought of before. Can we resolve together that we will not come to religion or even to God um, simply seeking self-improvement this year? I know we all want to get better. I know I need to read my Bible more and pray more. I need to improve on a lot of things. But that's not the essence of why Jesus Christ became flesh and entered the world. Not to tinker with us and make us better versions of our former selves. That's not what the Christian life is. That we, we see deficiencies in sin. We've got holes in our buckets, perhaps. And we're looking to God. We're looking to church. We're looking to something in hopes that we can plug the hole and get better. Now, what has Jesus actually come to do? He hasn't come to plug a hole. Jesus has come to give you life itself. Life itself. And, and this life is not even a bucket to begin with. It's not a better bucket for you to fill up periodically as you have need. 
He says, it is a well within you that springs up to eternal life. He, he changed the whole metaphor. He changed the whole picture for us. It's not a bucket that we take to fill up. It's the well within us. And so, y'all, I, I, my encouragement here for y'all, and this is for me as I look in the mirror at myself, stop setting your sights so low, just hoping for God to tinker and help us get better. That's the, that's the easier ambition I know. That's the more manageable thing I know. But that is not what he's come to accomplish. That would have done this woman no good for Jesus to say, get your act together, marry this sixth dude, and be done with it. He's the last one. Make up your mind. Do better. No, Jesus said, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for a drink, and I would give you life itself. And of course, we'll cite spoiler alert here. Next week, we'll see it. She does indeed come to know him, and we will meet her in heaven, this woman at the well. Y'all refuse to come to God in 2020, asking for him to just tinker in your life and make you a little better. You need transformation just like I do. And that is precisely what Jesus has come to give us. Jesus Christ, who knows you down to the bottom and loves you anyway, and says, I will bring transformation to your heart by the Spirit and the truth. Let's pray. Um, Father, correct us where we are like this woman. I'm like this woman. So often I just, just give me a drink for the moment. Just get me by. I'm thirsty, I'm, I'm empty, I'm, I'm, I'm ignorant, I'm scared, I'm sad, I'm anxious. Just get me through the day. Lord, we know that you care about us in all details. We know that you get us through every day. We know that, but Lord, give us more than that. And, and Lord, show us that perhaps we're asking for far too little from you as we enter into this new year. Lord, don't, don't allow us to be content to simply say, I just want to be a little better. I just want to read my Bible a little more. Um, I, just, you know, I, want to, I want to clean up you know, what's dirty. Father, point us to your Son, Jesus Christ, who promised us a well of living water springing up to eternal life. Point us to Jesus Christ, who loved us so much, that he was willing to die on our behalf to give us this life. And Lord, enrich us in faith today that we would not, um, certainly we would not be content to look at ourselves and, and, and conclude that better diet and exercise are, are all we need. But that we would refuse to even say, by my strength and discipline, I can be a better Christian. That, Lord, we're starting with ourselves and not with you. So give us faith to look upon Jesus Christ in his grace that we might stop trying to fill our broken buckets with that which cannot satisfy. Lord, give us grace to look to Jesus to trust Jesus, to devote ourselves to Jesus, that we truly might never thirst again, but that we might have life itself 
welling up within us. Lord, help us. I, I know this, like this woman so often, I don't even know what I'm asking for. But I know, Lord, that the answer is not in me. And so, Lord, please grant us the grace to see you in fresh ways and to love you, Lord, um, according to the grace you have so freely given to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.